I'm quite sure this morning that the name of Patsy Cline is familiar to at least some of you. She was killed in an airplane crash in 1963 at the tender age of only 30 years old. Also on that plane were country music stars Cowboy Copas and Hawkshaw Hawkins. You can look them up if you'd like. In 1957, Patsy Cline had her only major hit of the 1950s. It was a song entitled, Walking After Midnight. That single became a country music hit and it actually crossed over into the pop charts. And it was successful there also. You wanted to know all of this, right? Also. I'm getting, I'm going somewhere with this. In 1958, she recorded a song, never made it to the charts really as a top song. It was a song composed by Sammy Masters, Richard Pope, and Tex Satterwhite. It was among a handful of, of singles that were unsuccessful completely for Patsy Cline. And yet the words of the song are quite meaningful. The song is entitled, If I Could See the World Through the Eyes of a Child. And it goes like this. Scared you, didn't I? You thought I was going to sing it. Anyway, here are the words to the song. <clears throat> if I could see the world through the eyes of a child. What a wonderful world this would be. There'd be no trouble and no strife. Just a big happy life. With a bluebird in every tree. If I could see the world through the eyes of a child. Smiling faces would greet me all the while. Like a lovely work of art it would warm my weary heart. Just to see through the eyes of a child. I could see right, no wrong. I could see good, no bad. I could see all the good things in life I've never had. If I could see the world through the eyes of a child, what a wonderful world this would be. I think the words of that song Speak to what Jesus had in mind when He gave us the words of our text. If you look at the context of Matthew chapter 18, the disciples have come to Jesus with a question. And it's a question that's born out of what it is they've been engaging in. Because once again, the disciples of Jesus have been engaging in what was probably their favorite pastime, and that was arguing among themselves about which one of the twelve was actually the greatest. In Mark chapter 9 and verse 33, you read there that when they got to Capernaum, Jesus asked them, He said, what was it you were arguing about while we were on the road? They said, nothing. And didn't answer Him. But Mark tells us they were arguing among themselves as they traveled to Capernaum. The disciples were arguing among themselves about which one was the greatest. 
That was something they were really good at. Dr. Luke actually tells us that they were arguing about who was the greatest while they ate the last Passover with Jesus. Jesus is only a few hours from being nailed to a rough-hewn wooden cross. And what are His twelve closest friends and closest associates doing? They're arguing about which one of them is the most important. Now, Matthew records for us in Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus took the disciples off by themselves, told them He was going to Jerusalem and He was going to be betrayed. That He was going to be scourged and He was going to be crucified. And then He's going to rise again the third day. Now you talk about people so self-absorbed. People that have no clue of what's going on. We read that after he tells them all of this, it's Salome, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus and says, I've got a request. When you come into your kingdom, would it be possible that my sons, one could sit on your right hand and one could sit on your uh, left hand? He's fixing to be crucified. He's told them he's going to be scourged. He's going to be nailed to the cross. And Salome says, uh, I have a question. Uh, when you come into your kingdom... Talk about real good timing. We also keep reading there in Matthew 20. You find out the others heard about this and they got, it says, somewhat angry. You think? You see, this idea of who's the most important, which one of us is the greatest of the apostles, that was a <coughs> very prevalent idea and concept and point of discussion that they had. Our text is in Matthew chapter 18, the first six verses. So I want you to turn there and read there with me if you'd like. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, Except you be converted and become as little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Lord? The one who becomes like a little child. I noticed something right there on the very front of that. Jesus wants us to become childlike. He does not want us to become childish. And there's a vast difference in those two concepts. Being childlike is a very positive thing. Being childish is a very negative thing. Let's be honest. There's something powerful about a little child, isn't there? There's something irresistible about a little child. A baby can melt the heart of the cynic and a two-year-old can open the pocketbook of a miser. A baby can put a smile on the face of the joyless and a baby can give hope to those who are in despair. 
truth be told, nothing like a baby can take ordinary people and turn them into obnoxious grandparents as quickly as a baby can do it. Children, they seem so lovely and so sweet and so wonderful until you have to raise some of them. Because those sweet little innocent babies and those sweet young children go up, grow up to be teenagers. And then you understand why some animals eat their young. Jesus told those around Him that day, you must become converted and you've got to become as little children. What are the characteristics of little children that Jesus wants them to have? How is it we're supposed to view the world through the eyes of a child? Well, one of the things Jesus wants us to have is a childlike faith. God is real to children. Children don't doubt the existence of God. Children, small children, <clears throat> they find it easy to trust God for the very best. But then as we get a little older, our pride takes over, doesn't it? We become suspicious, we become skeptical of anything that's beyond our own experience. We become cynical and we find it hard to trust someone else. But you think about little children. And think about the characteristics that they possess when it comes to faith. They're innocent. And they're sincere. And they're so eager to learn and to see what they can find out. And they're teachable. They're humble. They're trusting. They're open. They're simple. And they are spontaneous. They are completely unpretentious. You know what we do with faith sometimes, folks? Sometimes we take faith and we just make it too hard. We take faith and we make it too difficult. We make it too complex. Sometimes. And we need to understand this. Faith is just coming to God as we are. <clears throat> as a child. A little child. In need of a loving, good, and powerful Heavenly Father. Because you see, having the faith of a child, we need to have the humility of a little child. How did Jesus start this? He said, Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child, he said, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All of us, at some point in our lives, sometimes at several points in our lives, have seen the danger, the devastation and the damage that pride can sometimes cause. 
Remember the lesson Jesus taught in the story of the Pharisee and the public in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a publican. One was one of the religious leaders of his day. The other was one of the social outcasts, considered the greatest of evil people. And it says that Pharisee gets to the temple and he stands there and he prays with himself. He lifted his eyes up and he said, Oh God, I thank Thee I'm not as other men are. Proud, ungrateful extortioners, adulterers. Or even that publican standing over there pointed him out. And then he says, God, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I possess. He congratulates God on how lucky God is. How fortunate God is to have a servant like him. And then this public and this outcast stands off over in the corner by himself. He won't lift up his eyes toward heaven. He smote his breast. He says, God, God be merciful to me, a sinner. What did Jesus say about that Pharisee and that publican? He said that that publican went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Jesus said, everyone that exalteth himself shall be humbled. He that humbles himself. Jesus said, shall be exalted. Humility was the lesson Jesus was trying to teach the twelve in John chapter 13. They were gathered around the table there eating the Passover feast. The last meal they would ever enjoy with their master. And you know what they were doing? I told you a while ago, Luke tells us they're arguing about who's the greatest. But one of the things when they set up the feast that night... They'd forgotten to provide to have a servant there to wash their feet. And you, you think about that day and time, the only mode of transportation was walking up and down those dusty roads. And their feet would be sore and calloused and dirty. And there they sat at the meal that night. And while the twelve are arguing about who's the most important and who's the greatest... Jesus, the Son of God, who's about to be crucified, it says He took a towel and He girded Himself and He took a basin. And Jesus went around the room and washed the feet of those twelve apostles that night. He taught them a, a lesson in practical humility. The Lord wants us to be humble like a little child. He doesn't want us to be sitting around arguing about who's the greatest. Now you think about little children, okay? When was the last time you saw a two-year-old in daycare boasting about the fact that he'd gone longer without wetting his diaper than anybody else in daycare? Yeah. There's just no pretentiousness among these two-year-olds. There's no competition there. They're just children playing and enjoying life. But you think about it, that's a pretty good parallel about who's the greatest. Little children know how to be humble. And that's what Jesus is telling me and you. We need to be humble. We need that dependency that a child has. When you get right down to it, little children don't really have a whole lot to offer. About the only thing these that little children have to offer is that they can give you a squeeze hug. And they can look at you or they can crawl up in your lap with a book and say, Poppy, read. 
and melt your heart. They're fun to look at. And they're fun to play with. And they're fun to hold. They melt your heart when they tell you they love you. They fill you with joy when they run to meet you and they're glad to see you. But they can't earn a paycheck. And they can't cook a meal. <coughs> they can't wash clothes. They can't cut the grass. Little children are pretty much useless when it comes to doing anything. Because everything has to be done for them. But have you ever noticed the trusting nature of a child? That a child is not afraid when their father is near. That child thinks dad is Superman. They have complete trust in whatever dad asks of them or whatever dad tells them. They bring all the pieces of a broken toy to daddy and they say, daddy, fix it. And daddy tries to fix it. They think dad is, can do anything in the world. And they're not afraid if daddy's around. I remember some years ago, been a lot of years ago, Bryant was probably three, maybe four years old. We went to Federal Hill in Bardstown, Kentucky. That was the home of Judge John Rowan. It was a beautiful southern plantation house that was the inspiration for Stephen Foster to write the song, My Old Kentucky Home. And we took a tour of the house, and it was a massive three-story affair. And when you climbed the stairs all the way to the third floor, they had this beautiful ballroom there. And we got all the way to the third floor, and Bryant took his mother's hand, or he took my hand, and he climbed those stairs all the way to the top just like a champ. And he's up there, and he's just enjoying life, and then it's time to come down. And we start to come down the, the stairs, and we walk, and as we get just to the... I've got him by the hand, and he gets there, and he stops. And he's frozen. It's three flights down, and those stairs are steep, and... He's scared, and he starts to cry, and he's afraid, and he doesn't want to go down the stairs. So we tell him, it's going to be okay. I'm going to hold your hand. And he's crying. Finally, nothing would do that child. Daddy had to pick him up. And Daddy had to carry him down three flights of steep stairs. And you know what? He held on and he relaxed and he was not the least bit afraid. Now, I will be honest with you, he would have been a lot safer walking and holding my hand than he was for me to carry him. But he didn't think so. He had that trust. Daddy's going to be here. Daddy's here and Daddy's going to take care of me. I'll give you another illustration that involved Matt. He's his freshman year in high school and he's playing football. They're having their last scrimmage before the season starts. And they're scrimmaging a team out of Fort Worth, and Matt's playing center. And a guy across the line from him weighs somewhere near 300 pounds. And it's a controlled scrimmage. You run so many offensive plays and so many defensive plays. And they ran their next-to-last offensive play, and, and Matt was going to be done. It's a hot August afternoon. And there's a fumble. And Matt goes after it. And he, he's on the ground and he reaches his arm out to, get that, to drag that ball in. And just as he reached his arm out, this big 
300-pound nose guard from Fort Worth dives for the ball and just rolled his arm. Well, Norm and I are at the far end of the field, and when all the dust settles, all we see is this kid laying face down in the dirt and the grass, not moving a muscle. Now, you have to understand the rule. The rule was, Mom, if I get hurt, don't you dare come out on that field. That was the rule. Dad, you make sure she doesn't. Give me something easy to do. Anyway, we're standing there. He's not moving. Did he get his neck rolled? Did he? What happened? We don't know. Coaches are in a little circle around him. The trainer's off on the other field where the varsity is. And we're standing there, and it seemed like hours. It wasn't quite that long, but it was hours. But it seemed like it. So we walk a little closer, see if we can see what's going on. We walk a little closer. Finally, I said, I'm going out there. I don't care what he says. Norma said, well, I need to. I said, she said, but it'll be better for, if he, for him. It'll be better if you go than I go. We both knew that, so I walked out there. Well, we found out it was wasn't near. It wasn't his neck. It wasn't his back. It was just both bones were broken in his arm. Nothing real serious, you know. But they had told him not to move because they didn't want it to damage any further. But he was telling somebody about it, and somebody said, "Matt, were you afraid?" He said, "Well, I was at first. He said, but I was laying there." And I looked out and I saw some shiny black shoes and a pair of black slacks and this big red belly. I was wearing a red knit shirt. He said, when I saw those black shoes and those black slacks and that big red belly, I knew Daddy was out there and it was going to be all right. They both reached a point that they realized Dad wasn't Superman. Children do that, you know. They, they grow up and they reach a point that dad's not really Superman. He really can't do everything. But what about God? What about God? Our Heavenly Father can do anything and everything. When we realize our sufficiency is not in ourselves, our sufficiency is in God. And we realize that our Heavenly Father will take care of us. Then we're going to make sure we do everything in our power to stay near to the God of Heaven, our Heavenly Father. As a little child goes to their father, with the broken pieces of their life or knowing Daddy, you'll take care of this. We've got to come to God with our insignificance. And we've got to come to God with our lack of security. We must realize our total dependence on God and throw ourselves at His mercy. Realizing He's the potter and we're the clay. He's the Creator, we are the created. He's the perfect one and we are the sinful ones. 
We need that childlike innocence and wonder. A one-year-old toddler doesn't know anything about prejudice or lust or murder or any of these other sins of the flesh. And the world sometimes ridicules Christians as an innocent people as naive. So some Christians sometimes participate in sinful activity just to avoid being mocked as being naive. Oh, but we would do so well to imitate the purity of a child and stay away from things that we know are evil. You know, we don't have to be experienced in sin to be against sin. We don't have to have experience in it to to know it's evil and bad. I don't have to drink poison to know it'll kill me. I know it will. I don't have to go handle rattlesnakes to know that they'll bite me and hurt me and kill me. I don't have to be experienced in sin to know and to be against sin. We've got to find that childlike wonder and innocence again. To be like little children, they're fascinated with the simplest of toys. Oftentimes they're more fascinated with the box than they are with the toy itself. And a mother takes a cloth and puts it over the child's face and pulls it back and says, Peekaboo! And the child just giggles and squeals. Or watch the eager face of a child when they pet an animal. Or they sing a song. Or they smell a flower. Or they see a butterfly. Sadly, sometimes we become so jaded and so cynical that the world becomes so commonplace for us we don't see anything special anymore. The harsh reality of pain and conflict and evil makes us cynical. Jesus said, except you be converted and become as little children. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. And be filled with a childlike awe and enthusiasm for the sacrifice He made. Has the Lord's Supper become commonplace? Then we need to once again focus on the sacrifice that it represents. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of all the blessings we have at Christians because sometimes we take so much for granted. To boil it all down, a child knows they're dependent on others. We need to realize our dependence on Jesus Christ. We need to realize our dependence on God. Paul tells us while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now here's the question. Is your faith and your trust in God this morning? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of your life? I'm going to say this at least one more time. If Jesus Christ is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. Have you ever made Him Lord of your life? If not, would you do that? In simple trusting faith, conf- repenting of everything that's sin in your life, confessing His name and being buried in the waters of baptism. Cleanse yourself from past sins. Become as innocent as a little child in the sight of God. And say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. Or maybe you've done that, but you haven't lived His kind of life, His way. You've lost that trust of a child, that faith of a child in Jesus. Maybe you need to come back home and say, Lord, I want to be your child once more. I don't know what's going on in your world or what's going on in your life. 
But if you need to make changes for Jesus to be the Lord of your life, to be once again that child in the presence of the Lord, and we can help you make those changes, this is your opportunity to come and let us help you do that as together we stand and while we sing.